This podcast is a frank discussion on sexual assault. If you are in the USA for free and confidential help, call 1-800-865-HOPE in Australia for confidential counseling and support in cases of sexual assault or abuse. Please call 1-800-RESPECT. For 20 years, Gavin Badger was a highly respected referee in the National Rugby League. For that entire time, he buried the secret of childhood sexual abuse that profoundly impacted his everyday life. Today, he courageously reveals his inspiring story, which highlights for survivors of sexual assault that achieving your dreams is possible. Gavin also provides remarkable insight into how to educate your children and communities and the red flags all parents and guardians should be looking for. It is my privilege and honor to welcome Gavin Badger to Open Stance. Hi, Gavin. Welcome to Open Stance. Where does this podcast find you today? Um, yeah, I'm actually um, just finished up work uh, um, uh, in New South Wales Rugby League. So I'm in Sydney, Australia, just um, kicking back, just finished work on a Friday afternoon. So um, generally a good time to have a chat, but um, we'll see how we go. And how are you feeling today, Gavin, about this podcast? Um, yeah, it's, it's, I sort of have mixed feelings around, um, you know, talking uh, about my experiences because I know by hearing other people's stories, it made me stronger and made me be able to, to talk about it. Um, but it also brings up a lot of stuff from the past that for a long time you try and sort of just push down and not think about too much because um, it weighs so heavily on you. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of mixed feelings about um, actually opening up and, and talking, you know, talking about it. But um, the overriding fact is that, you know, the, the reason why I came out and told my story is because I heard somebody else tell theirs. Tell theirs. So, um, yeah, that's the strength. That's the strength that I have to be able to say, well, you know what, um, the more we put this out there and the more we speak about it and the more um, we educate people, um, the better the world we'll live in, hopefully. Amazing. Yeah, um, that's powerful, powerful stuff. Well, Gavin, let's begin with rugby league. You are a former legendary Australian rugby league referee. Your career spanned across 18 seasons and 354 games which has actually landed you third in all-time games officiated at the first grade level. Gavin, in your words, can you please share with our listeners what is rugby league and what this sport has been to you in your life? Um, well, there's three, but two really major ones that um, cover the whole country, and that's um, the National Rugby League, which is our sport, which is um, for a lot of people, they know what rugby is, but rugby league's uh, a version, a 15-man, 13-man uh, side version of, of that. I um, mean, our other major code is the AFL. Um, so it, it's a, it's a quite a major sport in Australia um, and um, in this part of the world, so South Pacific, um, New Zealand, um, and then in the north of England, it, it's, it's quite big as well. So it's, it, it's a major sort of sport for us. Um, and I grew up as a kid loving the sport. Um, I started playing when I was three years old and, sort of in my life, you know, my sport has been the most constant thing in my life. And, you know, it, it's always been there. It's something I could always sort of turn to, if that sounds a bit cheesy, but it, it, it's sort of my release. And um, and it's given me great opportunities, you know, to be able to then, you know, when I when I stop playing, um, to be able to officiate at the highest level, um, be able to have a career out of that and actually make that my job. I was 
uh, for 15 years of that, I was a full-time match official. That was my job. So, um, and then the opportunities that's created post now that I'm retired, that, you know, I, I, I still work in the game and I'm still able to go out there and, um, and be part of, you know, what I, I feel is the biggest family for me and my big, my biggest family, that's the rugby league community. So, um, yeah, similar, it's a, there's a lot of similarities between our sport and the NFL. Um, in the fact that, you know, you have a certain amount of plays to get to a certain part of the field and, and there are some similarities. Ours just sort of continues a little more and it's not as structured as, as the NFL. And, and I'm a massive NFL fan as well, so that probably um, correlates why I enjoy both sports. You've been on the field with these guys for 18 years, uh, 18 seasons. Which one's tougher, NFL or rugby league? Uh, they're, they're, they're both... They both have their, I think, I'm going to sound a bit biased here, but I think the NRL, like the rugby league, is because it's non-stop. You know what I mean? So you're not only are you, you know, physically got to be strong, you've also got to be anaerobically strong as well. You've got to continue those. Where um, the NFL is more a power, uh, power sport. It's, you know, a real sharp burst, you know, and the athletes in that game are insane in the NFL. Um, the strength and the speed that they can move their bodies around. But anaerobically, I think the, the NRL guys, when you put it all together, probably slightly have an advantage and no protection that's a big and, one <laughs> yeah and no padding no padding amazing yeah man rugby league is very close to your heart but today we're sharing a conversation about something else which is deeply close to your heart you've shared publicly a dark secret you've carried since you were a very young boy 11 years old you've been able to release the secret and tell others you are a survivor of childhood sexual abuse Thanks for using your voice now to help others know that they are not alone and to use your experience to help protect and empower our children. Oh, um, I really appreciate that. Thanks. So um, I'd love to start. This is something that just when you're talking about male sexual abuse um, for, uh, with children or teenagers, uh, statistics and scientific research always point to the fact that the perpetrator is someone usually known to the child or teenager, has this been your experience? Is uh, this yeah, yes, it was a family friend. In, in, in my case, it was actually a a, a boy, uh, a brother of one of my sister's boyfriends, um, who'd been around our family for a long, for a, a while. So, um, yeah, the research, uh, especially in, in this country, um, ninety three percent of perpetrators are known to the ch child when it comes to child sexual assault. So it's very rarely a case someone outside either the family, um, social or sporting unit. So, um, yeah, it's, it's generally someone you know, and that's, that's the, the scariest part of this, that it's someone that a family trusts around their, around their children, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, no matter what other assets you own in your life, your children are the most important asset that we have. And, you know, to be able to, and, and for someone to be able to get in and, and be sort of part to, to be able to get at vulnerable children is um is quite scary that that's the percentage it's, it's 93 percent and i think that percentage virtually is the same around the world that that's a shocking number um so based on that you're talking um your article you were 11 years old yavin is that right yeah and yep. it was someone you knew so you're a young vulnerable child um what are some of these tactics and devices that again we hear about how perpetrators known to the child or teenager um, have these um, devices that they deploy to manipulate and coerce um, a young boy 
into unwanted sexual experiences or sexual assault, and then even uh, more profound, how you're manipulated into silence, which can carry on for a lifetime. Yeah, and my story has all of that in it as well. So um, for, for me, I, I grew up in a, a fairly, like I've got uh, four brothers and sisters, so there's five of us, um, to uh, three different fathers. Um, and virtually my mum has been a single mother for us all the time. So there's already a, a spot there for someone to manipulate um, because, you know, having five kids at all different ages um, and we all, all played sports and stuff. So it was very hard for my mum to organise everything for us. So someone can see that and go, well, here, I'll sort of come in this way. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the kids to footy training for you or I'll take the kids to swimming or I'll, you know, well, you take that one there, I'll stay home and watch that child. So, um, you know, they're the vulnerabilities that people look for in families as, you know, ways in, you know, if I get a way in and, and start as the really nice guy and, you know, I, I'm actually, you know, to the family or to the outside world, everyone's thinking, well, how good is this guy? They're actually helping this person or this family survive. Um, and that's some of the, the ways that they can get in and, and have access to being around children you know, with no one else around. And um, that was very much the case with me where um, my mum was time poor around um, being able to look after us all. Um, when we were all pretty wild kids as well, you could, uh, as you can imagine back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s and, and the way the world was then. Um, and we actually lived across the road from um, a pretty um, rough pub as well, like literally across the road. So, um, you know, we had a lot of people coming in and out of the house from there. So there was a lot of... Thinking that my mum, thinking that she was doing the right thing, she took in a lot of people and tried to help out a lot of people, but um, she's also making it very easy for people to come in and, and making, you know, the kids quite vulnerable. So, um, yeah, just it was virtually a bit of an open house, our house, and people could come and crash if they needed to crash and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, that, that sort of leads to, you know, the, the kids being vulnerable and seeing things they probably shouldn't see as well. So, in a way, they're um, grooming the parents or the caretaker as well. Um, I, I, yeah, act, I think that's act. the main part of it, grooming, grooming the adults first, you know, getting that trust off the adults first to be able to then be put in positions where it's much easier to groom, groom the children. And then when in your situation with somebody that you know um, and you find yourself in this abusive, was yours ongoing? Was it one time? Was it a long, long no, period so, of time? So there was... Um, there was grooming sort of leading up. So there was multiple occasions of different type of sexual um, assaults um, leading into, the, um, you know, what was a, you know, quite horrendous sexual assault. Um, so there was, and then off the back of that, um, threats of, you know, I've got a younger brother and well, and then threats made that if I didn't come back that, well, that'd be okay because my younger brother was there and stuff like that. So um, yeah, there were, and, and, and threats of, you know, assault um, towards my family and stuff like that. If I if I ever said anything, so um, it, it there was multiple facets to it. Yeah, so um, I which as an eleven year old kid is quite daunting. Uh, um, so, thinking from a position of how can we recognize some of these danger signs straight away? You're eleven years old. You just mentioned there was a a pathway that the perpetrator um, used. Um, to the point of um, death threats. 
what were some of the initial grooming tactics? Were they a bit more simple in terms of um, you read about bribes or lollies or chocolates or special attention? Was there anything in there that if a parent or a caretaker is talking to their kid one night and we ask that question, oh, you got a lolly from that person, that there's a red flag for people to pay attention to those things when a child's speaking about what another adult is doing with them or for them. Yeah, there's lots. And, and there's things that I talk a lot about now. And I think the most basic one is, I remember, you know, whenever someone came into the house or whatever, we were told, you know, go and give them a hug or, you know, go and give them a kiss as, as, a, as a kid. And that was meant, and if you said no, you're like, no, go, you know, you go and give them a hug, you know I mean? So automatically what you're doing is you're creating a, 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 a bit of a, a non-boundary between someone and, you know, as, as much as people don't see that as a sexual experience, it is a sexual experience. You know what I mean? Like a, a hug or a kiss, that's something that, you know, should be dictated by that child. If that child doesn't feel comfortable doing that, then they shouldn't be forced to do it. Um, and I know, you know, I see, I still see it with my friends and family and that, and, 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 you know, I sort of pull them up on it a bit, you know, if that kid doesn't want to go and give that person a hug, don't force them to, because what you're creating is that if you're not there and that person says, come and give me a hug and they, you know, they have, you know, ulterior motives to it, that child doesn't know to say no, they think they have to do it. Um, and, you know, sort of that was a bit of my situation. So it happened around, um, like I said before, we, you know, we were a pretty poor family as well. Like we didn't have a lot. Um, we had what we needed and we, we always ate and we always were, you know, clothed and fed, but there wasn't, I, I've never, I'd never been on a family holiday. I'd never gone and, and just gone and, and gone to restaurants to eat and stuff like that. We just didn't do that. Um, so all of a sudden there was this person who was taking me shopping, you know what I mean? Like I'd go, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take Gavin footy training today. And then on the way home from footy training, we'd stop at the sports store and he'd buy me something, you know what I mean? And then, yeah, the little things like that. And then, it, it, and then off them would come, I'll come and sit on my lap. And then, you know, then there was some touching and, and, and some stuff around that. And it's like, oh, well, you know, if you want this, this is how you get this. And, you know what I mean? So you, you, as a kid, you don't know about those experiences unless, unless you're taught about them. And like I said, being always told that you have, you know, that, that's an adult and you've got to go and respect that adult by a hug or a kiss um, makes you very vulnerable. And you're, you're an 11 year old boy. So in most cases, we're assuming children at this age, in most cases have never had a sexual experience in their life. You're just a child. So um, the conversation is what I'm getting to here. When does it start with our children in our communities, um, whether it is from our parents or for the, from the schools or from the communities at large? When are these conversations happening? If you're 11 years old, we know nothing for the most part. We have not had sexual experiences for the most part. So what do you say to these, what do you say today about looking back and knowing that you were so vulnerable and how do we start coaching and teaching our children and at what age? Yeah, and I'm not an expert on this topic. I just know from lived experiences and what I, you know, what I try and do and what I try and, you know, the, the education that I have gotten, you know, through through the th probably the last three or four years, I've really looked at you know different methods and stuff like that. And but what what I find um, is as early as you can, like as early as a child starts to talk, starts to read, um, there's material there that you can do, and you do it, you know, in, you know, you're not in, not in an adult way, doing a child way. There's some really good books, you know, around my body, my rules, and C is for consent and you know, just little things that you start to build those conversations. So it's not uncomfortable for your child to come and talk to you. 
you know, I mean, and I've got a grandson now who's nine, but for as long as I can remember, we've always sort of tried to encourage him to talk to us. Like we'll ask questions when he comes home from school or if he's, you know, if he's at a party at a friend's house, you know I mean? If, if we take him to a birthday party and then we'll sort of make a conversation and try and ask around who he interacted with that day, you know, and what kind of interactions were they? What kind of interactions do you have with your teacher? What kind of interactions do you have with your football coach? Like, oh, did you have fun at training today? Yep, what did you do? Okay. Um, who, and then something, a name might come, oh, who's that person? What do they do? Oh, that's the trainers, you know, that's our other trainer. Oh, okay, how come I haven't met that trainer? Is this his first time? Yeah, and think, and just build conversation so that it, they'll, generally then the kids would want to talk and tell you. There's some days where we ask him questions, he goes, I don't want to talk, you know, as, as six, seven, eight-year-olds do. But if we create those conversations for him and let him know, you know, you know what, if you don't want to hug that person, don't hug them. If someone forces you to hug them, you let us know. You know, I mean, you try and create um, abilities for children to then speak up. You talk about statistics before. So 90, it's over 90% of children who make complaints are telling the truth. Children are only believed around 33% of the time. So you think about all those, you know, instances where a child has said something or brought something up and they haven't been believed because it's a family friend, it's your uncle, it's your cousin, that wouldn't happen. I know that person. That person's been around our family for years. People, some some perpetrators take five, six years before they start to, to you know, to perpetrate. Yeah, I mean, before they start to, because that's their grooming process. They know when, you know, they're smart people. Like, you know what I mean? They, they do this. Yeah, they know what they're doing. They know they're, how to do it. Calculating. Yes, they know what they're doing. So it might not be, that's the first time you've met someone and they, you know, they will be calculated. Um, so they're the conversations you've got to have. And, and, and kids are smart and they're perceptive. And they know what's going on. And and you know, I've spoken about this to some of my friends around the you know, don't force kids to cuddle. And they sit back and they go, well, I do that all the time. You know, I, I, and I actually remember times where kids were, where kids were crying saying, I don't want to give them a hug. So well, there's a reason why that kid, there must be something. And sometimes it's just because someone's got bad breath or someone smokes and they don't like the smell of it. You know what I mean? But, but you're still putting a child in an uncomfortable situation. And if that's all they know when it comes to adults, that it's okay for them to be uncomfortable, well, then they'll continue to be uncomfortable. So... I think they're the big conversations we've got to have. And you've, you've got to do it in a way that you're going to get, you, you, it's not about telling kids that this is, it's about asking questions, seeing what they know and what they understand. And if they're aware of the people who are around them. In your, in your story at 11 years old, 12 years old, um, did you want to tell somebody? Did you, <sighs> yeah, were it, too scared to tell somebody? There was, there was a lot, there was a lot of reasons why. And I, I, I it's funny, um, over the last couple of years, I've thought a lot more about it than I have over the last 30 years. Um, and there's certain, there's, there's little things I remember. I remember when I actually come home from when I was attacked and I actually remember sitting on the lounge and thinking, what am I going to do? And I don't think at 11, I thought about anything too much. You know I mean? I just did stuff at 11 years old. I, I didn't think about stuff. You just did. You know what I mean? And I, I actually remember sitting there and saying, what do I do about this? And then is this me? Was this my fault? Um, talk about not knowing about um, sexuality or anything like that. I didn't know, okay, am I now gay? That was, you know, because it was a man who put, you know, things like that was going through my head. And then, okay, if I tell people, and back then, seven, like, you know, early 80s it was, you know, the acceptance of homosexuality was nowhere near what it is today. So all this, there was a stigma towards that, towards me as well. Or what are my friends going to think about me? Um, what are my family going to think about me? This is, a, a you know, a, someone that we've known for, for quite a long time and, you know, they're going to believe me, um, so many things. And then on the other side of that, you know, I was threatened with a rifle and, 
and stuff like that. Like um, after happened that if I did say something and the threat, you know, my younger brother and I, um, I'm not really tight with any of my family, except for my younger brother. Um, we're, we're pretty close. Um, and even as an 11 year old, I used to, you know, he, he was always with me. Um, and then there was a fear, was, is this happening to him as well? And do I ask him about it? And it took me 30 years to ask him if anything ever happened to him. You know I mean? He's one of the only people that I've really sat down and spoken to about it, him and my wife. Um, and then there was a fear that it was happening to him. I have, you know, I might be speaking out of school here. I have some thoughts that it may have happened to my older brother. Um, he's got some issues at the moment and I think it has to do with that. He won't, I've asked him as well, um, but he won't say anything. And I think he feels guilty because I think he knows it went from him to me. That's just a thought. And I reckon that's um, plays a big part in where we don't have a great relationship. Um, yeah. around uh, So um I sort of lost track of, of where I was going with all that, but um, it is it. It was really hard for me to think about, you know, do I say something? Do I, and, and do I break up this whole family situation? Do I am in fear that this person is going to hurt my family? Um, and that's that's way too much for an eleven-year-old kid to have to deal it's, with. It's um, it's impossible for an eleven-year-old kid. I look back on it now, and I and, and I really and, and you know, I mean, I can talk about this for forever, but. Um, the way my life changed and the impact that I had on my life from there, from um, from not saying, uh, 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 and not only the fact that, you know, um, that I hid this from people that, you know, that, that could have helped me maybe, um, but the fact that um, going forward that this happened to other people as well by the same person. And if I'd have spoken up, um, you know, maybe, and I only found that out years later, um, but maybe I could have um, prevented that as well. So I have some guilt around not saying something as well, a lot of guilt. It's a real tough one. And um, the next, this question, it almost seems ridiculous, but when you're an 11 year old child, you're a 14 year old boy, the stories I've come across um, and you're threatened with your life, your, th your family members are threatened. There's all kinds of things going on when you're, you're so young, you can barely process um, what's happening. You're, you're fearful. Is there anything that you can think of today that would help an 11 year old boy say something so horrific when they're in fear for their life or their family members just um, the fact that they've had a sexual experience for the first time that was unwanted and abusive the only thing i can say is that they have people like family around them that they know that they can go to for anything like that so i didn't feel and and this isn't this is just what it was you know what i mean and um you know i, I didn't feel like you know, I, could, I had a close relationship with anyone except for my younger brother who wouldn't have understand at the time. He would have been six or seven at the time um, who I could have spoken to. I didn't feel, I never had a father. I've never met my father. So I've never had a father figure around and I've had, a, you know, stepfathers here and there that, you know, I didn't have great relationships with, with as well. Um, yeah, but um, I'd like to think with my kids and, and my grandson that they could talk to me um, and they feel comfortable in talking to me, um, which would then because I think if, if, I think if I'd have spoken and spoken up a little bit when I was younger, um, maybe things would have been different as well. But you know, I, I, I'm I look back and I'm fairly fortunate because I'm still alive. Mm. Um, statistics say you know there's a high percentage of people who um, sexually abuse when they were ch children either die through drug abuse, um, uh, death by suicide, you know, or you know, around that. So. I'm pretty fortunate. So through it all, you know, I must've done something. I had had a bit of luck and I think sport for me was my outlet. 
Um, I've always been involved in some kind of sport, if not four or five on the run. So I sort of used that um, as a bit of an outlet for the first couple of years um, till I was about, you know, 14. And then, you know, I, I, I found my, my, my thing was drugs to, to numb everything. I found drugs at a pretty young age, at, you know, at 13. Um, and by 14, 15, it was, you know, some harder drugs, but that was, that was numbing the pain for me more than anything. Um, that's a, that's a big one. So when you're talking about, um, so the major thing that happens in, in these scenarios is we lock it away um, and it becomes the deadly secret. And uh, research and studies talk about the secret is the silent killer. Um, I agree with this. Um, and once you lock that secret away, all the, the poison that sits inside for, um, in some cases, a lifetime, in other cases, like yours, 30 years, uh, the behavioral changes, the issues, the coping mechanisms to deal with the pain. Um, you mentioned when we spoke before this podcast that straight away when you were 11 or 12, like you just mentioned, you started um, smoking pot, which led to um, years of abuse um, in different respects. So those behavioral changes, Gavin, uh, again, you're still in school at this time. Your teachers are around you. You do have family members around you. Is anybody picking up on, number one, what were some of these um, very obvious signs that you mentioned in school and in your personality that we should be aware of also and not just, you know, knock it off to, oh, this kid's, you know, a disruptive child now, but that hadn't been your track record. What are these red flags we should be looking for to dig deeper into what is causing them? Yeah, behavioral changes are a massive indicator, massive. And for me, so at that 11, 12 years old, um, our schooling changes. So I go from primary school to a high school. So I was at that transition stage as well. So, if, and you can, there's a, there's a timeline where you can see in my school reports where my behavior just changed. You know, there were comments from all the teachers where, you know, a lovable kid, um, you know, a pleasure to teach, happy to have around the classroom up until that age and then post that. Grades and stuff were still similar. I was still getting, you know, decent enough grades and, um, you know, when it comes to doing my work and, and stuff, but the attitude comments were just dropping. And it got to points where some classes, when I was early in my high school, um, at, virtually as I walked in the classroom, the teacher would kick me up because they just didn't want to deal with me for that day. Um, and it was, it was more around, I wasn't like... Um, I don't think, well, I don't think, I don't know, I was, I was a kid. Um, I think I was more about um, lashing out than like and, and with, with humour. Like I tried to be the, the guy that everyone laughed at and I tried to make everyone laugh. So if a teacher said something, I'd try and make a joke of it. And so, yeah, I, I was really disruptive. I became really, dis not disrespectful, but really disruptive. Um, and I think that got too much for, for some teachers. Um, and yeah, I was always you know, just trying to make everyone laugh and, and, and be the center of attention um, for some reason. Um, and, and it really impacted on my schooling to the point where at 15, I left school. So I just, just, just to me, it wasn't, wasn't worth that. The only reason I stayed at school until that age was to play sport. <laughs> um, and then yeah, 15, yeah, yeah, almost 16, uh, just, just before I turned 16, I left school. And um, yeah, because I, I, to me, it was a waste of time. I was spending more time outside the classroom than inside it. Did you have rugby league in your life at that time or what did you do? Yeah, at I, still played. I, stopped, 
yeah, I was still playing. Um, this this is what people sort of you know always sort of look back and go that, and that's why I always say it was my constant. I was lucky enough that when I played um, football, I had like I said, I never had a father figure, but um, one of my coaches was um, someone that I looked up to a lot, um, and someone that you know was was sort of always there for me. Like he he was one person. Um, and you talk about I talk about the other side where people are grooming people by trying to do the right thing. My footy coach was a complete opposite. He tried as much as he can to get me to training. Like he'd come and pick me up. And I think he sensed that there was something going on um, around, you know, I don't know if it was, what, it, but that I was sort of going down a, a pretty bad path. So he'd make sure that I got to footy training um, and got to games if I needed a lift to games and stuff like that. And um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to have him there for a while, which kept me involved in that. And, and I was like, I played in some reasonably good footy sides as well. So winning and stuff like that and getting, some adulation there, I think, was something that I, I wanted. I craved as a kid because I never got it at home. Um, and sport gave me that, you know, because I played with some some pretty good players and, you know, played in some some good sides. And, yeah, I think that was my outlet as well, playing sports. So I stayed through it, even through it all. Even, yeah, there's, there's some wild stories of, you know, being out all night and getting home at 8 a.m. and going straight to, to footy and stuff like that, you know, where... I look back on it now and I think, how the hell did I do that? But um, that, I just, I don't know how I just continued to turn up to footy, but that was always there. I, I, I've got no doubt that rugby league's a big part into the reason why I'm still here. It's been a gift for you, I can tell. Amazing. Um, so <laughs> you live your whole life, 30, over 30 years with this secret. And um, then it comes to the surface. How did it come to the surface? What made it come to the surface? Who, who, or what made that happen? Yeah, there's a couple of factors to it, and like you said, I, I, I sort of, you know, pressed it down to the bottom of my gut for so long, and there were stages throughout my life where, you know, it, it wasn't a thing. Like, and it got to sometimes where I think, did that really happen? Sort of thing, because I'd pushed it aside for so long and not thought about it and tried not to think about it for so long, and then there's other times where to just go bang and, you know, I be in the you know, depth of depression and you know and and not want to be around um so it sort of ebbed and flowed throughout my life depending on what was going on on in it um and then so i've been with my partner now so uh, my wife my wife now for 13 or 14 years um and it was a couple of years into a relationship um there was a couple of times where i'd get sort of snappy you know, and just like snapping and, and it wasn't fair on her. And it was because like, she just get me at the wrong time. Like it never anything apart from like, I'd just be sharp with an answer or I just, um, she'd say something like sort of just really short and just leave or something like that. And I thought that's unfair. It's really unfair. Um, so I spoke to her. She was the first person I'd ever spoken to. Um, and I sort of, and without going into the whole detail, I said, look, this is what's happened. Um, this is why sometimes I'm, you know, I can be a bit short and I just leave the room or, or whatever instead of, you know, because I didn't want to see her see me crying and stuff like that. Um, so I spoke to her about it and then she was outstanding. She was amazing. Um, and she just said, look, I'm here for you. If you want to tell, if you want to do anything, um, whatever you want to, however you want to take this, you know, I'll always be there for you. So I've got to cry. <laughs> um, but having her around sort of made me think about it a little, little bit more. And then, um, it was a couple of years ago, and I don't know if she did this on purpose or not. She says she didn't. But um, we were going to Bali for Christmas. We're going to spend New Year's. Uh, we left the day after Christmas, so we're going to spend New Year's in Bali. And just happened to be the, I think it was the 2nd of January, there was a paddle out, what's called a, a, 
battle uh, against child abuse. Um, there's a guy named Damien Ryder who's done a lot of stuff in the States. He skateboarded the Route 66 and he, yeah. he ran a marathon carrying a mattress on his back. Um, he does crazy, like extreme events um, to raise awareness for child abuse. Um, he's a, a survivor of um, child sexual abuse. So he had this paddle out that was on there. Um, and he's, he's a fairly well-known guy and he's, he's done some reality TV and stuff like that. And um, just happened to be near where we're staying. So um, we sort of went along. Um, Kay said, you, there's something you want to sort of go? And I said, yeah, we'll go. So we paddled out, we caught a couple of waves and stuff. And then we're sitting out there and he started to tell his story. And Damien is, like I said, he's an extreme athlete and does amazing things. And just listening to him tell his story and, you know, and, and seeing him almost break down and seeing this like, you know, larger than life guy and, you know, accept that and, and, and seeing how, you know, everyone was sort of listening to him. It sort of maybe start to think about, you know, should I, you know, should I tell my story? So I had a quick conversation with him afterwards and I didn't mention too much, but I just, you know, sort of let him know that he was, you know, a pretty inspiring guy. And, you know, I'm sure that he's um, helped plenty then we went back to the hotel room and I was sort of sitting there and I was sort of scrolling through social media and I thought, what do I do? So I wrote this sort of social media post with some photos from the day, which sort of said, you know, it was an honour to meet Damien Ryder today. Um, not many people know this, but I'm also, a, I'm going to go again. I'm a, a survivor of child sexual abuse. Um, and it's guys like Damien who can make a difference in the world and, you know, can create change. And I sat on it and I sort of sat there. It was probably an hour I just sat on it. I didn't press send or anything like that. And then I just got the phone. I sort of gave it to Case. I said, what do you think about this? And she sort of looked at it and she started crying. Here I go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she said, um, you know, she, she, she was like, oh, you know, it's up to you. Do what you want with it. And I sort of just pressed send, turned my phone off. I didn't touch my phone for over a day because I wasn't sure um, what kind of responses I'd get to that. Um, like I said, I hadn't... I've, rightly or wrongly I hadn't even told my family um but I just felt something I just felt that I you know I, I've got to tell my story as well um and the response to it was amazing from you know my what I call my family my community the, the rugby league community um being a match official you don't get much positivity it's generally negative <laughs> everything everything I get is on social media is um generally negative um but it was amazing um the people that reached out to me um from the game. So players, ex-players, coaches, administrators, fans, had that many messages and, and, and well wishes. Um, I felt, it felt really good. But then I started to notice a lot of private messages. So, and, and for me, the proudest thing is that I got messages from people that had in the same situation. And um, from there said, you, you know, I'm now gonna go and, and, and tell my family, or I'm gonna, you know, now I'm gonna go and make a statement to the police. and and stuff like that. And I've built up connection with a lot of people on there that, you know, where we, you know, we sort of message each other and talk to each other and have actually caught up in person with a few other people um, where we've just been able to talk to each other about it without, you know, sort of knowing each other's stories and stuff like that. And these are people from all walks of life. I've got people who are in, in prison. Um, I've got people who are ex-Olympians, current Olympians. I've got people who are, you know, the head of their field in, in different avenues who all had the same experiences. And a lot of them in the same position where they hadn't spoken to anybody. Um, and I look at that and from, you know, a chance meeting with a guy like Damien to be able to do that, to then have connections with all these people. And outside of that, um, working with a couple of foundations um, and being ambassador for a few pe uh, um, 
organizations and being able to go out and have people ask me to speak to to people around you know my story um just from all that chance meeting it 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 sort of no, not that it, it, it ever you know it, whatever what happened to me is ever going to make sense but it 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 now it, it, i look at it now and i go well i'm in a position now where i can talk about it where maybe maybe you know i can have an, a small impact i have this small soapbox that maybe someone it might take one person that was thinking about you know doing something that might not do that now um you know and that that that's in anything i've done in my life you know that's one of the proudest moments to say that you know I, you know i'm little old me has that opportunity where i could have done something like that you know that that humbles me more than than anything and yeah it's it's quite a um overwhelming overwhelming feeling and and your message is is so powerful today specifically when we talk about um, males that are victims of sexual abuse in america it's one in six males experience sexual abuse but time, uh, before the time they're 18. in australia the number is one in 20 males those numbers are probably radically inaccurate based on the fact that most males um, do not report sexual abuse or assault. Um, so when you're speaking to the males about disclosing and revealing this type of um, secret in their life, um, the type of relief I'm hearing from you right now um, it's overwhelming, Gavin. Um, as a as a survivor myself, I know the road from speaking publicly for the first time and moving forward is not easy. There's no quick fix. There's no tablet that you can take. Um, there's a lot of hard work that comes from the moment that you actually speak publicly and bring up the demons, so to speak. Um, what are your thoughts on that, um, where you've lived with the secret for 30 years and, and the destruction that actually caused you living with it as opposed to the hard work and in a way re-traumatizing yourself, um, having to relive it by talking about it again, um, especially with males who are, again, science shows and studies show it's much harder for men to disclose about sexual assault than it is for women. Yeah, and well, the first time that I really spoke publicly about it was to a group of middle-aged men. Generally, um, it was the the referee squad that I was involved in. So I sort of sat down um, when I got back from from that trip to Bali, and we just start, we came back into preseason training. So we're in the gym, and we're sitting. That was our first day back, and I remember we we're all sitting in the gym, gym stretching and warming, and everyone was talking about their Christmas break. And I knew there was a bit of an elephant in the room because obviously they'd also my social media posts. And I just said, look, I just want to speak, obviously um, you're all speaking about your holidays and that I went on holiday, but um, there's a little bit more significance into, into mine. And obviously you all read the social media posts and stuff like that. And um, what I said to them was obviously um, people are going to want to hear this story. There was some news around it and stuff like that. I'm going to have to speak about it and speak publicly about it. Um, and I wanted them to be the first people that I spoke publicly to because I trusted them and, and, yeah, I um, I thought that if I could speak and be open and not lose it in front of those guys, I could probably do it anywhere. And, and girls, we had two girls in the squad as well at the time. Um, so I just said, look, this is, you know, I, I, I want to speak openly and honestly, I want to tell you um, all about it. If you're anywhere is uncomfortable, 
I'm, you know, don't, I don't take any offence to that. I don't, you know, you don't have to be there. But would it be okay if I sat in front of all you guys this afternoon and told my story and just gave you a bit of an insight into, you know, my story and who I am and why I am and, and you know, how I got here. And and they all said yes. And I remember sitting up in front of them. And this the thing for me now is I don't get emotional um, around the actual incident anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm dead to that, like, when it comes to emotions. I get emotional around when I talk about the support and, you know, all that stuff. That's what sort of gets me now because, like, I didn't have that for a long time. Um, so, yeah, when I, when, I, when I stood up and spoke in front of those guys um, and I brought that stat up. So we were in a room and there was 20 with coaches stuff and there was probably 28 of us in the room, two females, so 26 guys. And I brought that stuff up around one in 20. I said, so yes, this has happened to me, but the statistics are that there's another person in this room that it's happened to, you know what I mean? And, and that's how prevalent it is. Um, and being able to do that and stand up in front of them and get through it. Um, and then same thing, all the support that came off the back of that. Um, it, it, wanted, it made me then want to do it more. You know what I mean? It, 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 you know, I didn't have, I didn't feel like anything around you know, telling my story and depending on who it was, where it was as graphic as it needed to be. Um, you know, I mean, if, if, if I was in it, if I'm giving a talk to people and they want to know the whole, you know, and what happened and how it happened, I can do that now um, because, you know, I own that story now. It's my story. You know, in the past, I was always, you know, it was like it, something was taken away from me, but that's my story that, you know, I own it. So I get to tell it. Um, and I find by doing that, um, yeah, and, and, and being able to tell it with some strength, it, it you know, it gives it, yeah, it, it makes it stronger. Um, it is hard for males to do that though. And that's why I continue to push. And that's why I continue to, to talk whenever I get the opportunity about it, because if they see other males talking about it, um, they feel like, well, you know, well, it is okay to talk about it. Um, the other side to it is having, having not spoken about it for so long. And it's always the case with any historical rape cases, you know, where people come out and that the, the problem is gets so long, people get questioned when they come out. So when someone comes and says, this happened to me and it happened 20 years ago, the first question is someone always asks them is, why didn't you report it back then? You know, no one knows what someone's story is. No one should have the right to ask that question. And that's why I feel a lot of people won't bring their stories forward after having, you know, not, not talking about it for so long, whether it be a year, whether it be two months, whether it be a week later, the first question they always ask is, why didn't you tell someone at the time? Yes. No one knows what headspace someone is at that time. And it may take five, 10, 20 years before someone is strong enough to be able to talk, even openly talk about it. Um, you don't know what, you know, demons people about it or how, you know, if someone already goes in with some mental health issues and that happens to them, you know, it's, it's even harder. And I don't think as an 11 year old, I had mental health issues, um, but it was frightening for me to say something as an 11 year old. You know, and then as a 15 year old, there's other reasons why I didn't start to say things. Then as a 20, 25 year old, you start to get into careers and stuff. You think, is this going to hinder my career as well? If I... So there's no one knows what your story is. So no one has the right. And I really get upset um, whenever I hear anyone say, you know, why didn't that person come out at the time when it happened? You've got no right to ask that. No one has. You know, and that, and that, I think that is a massive reason why a lot of people don't come forward if they don't come forward in the first two or three days of it happening. Spot on. And that leads me to uh, um, something that I'm so passionate about is creating language for sexual assault and rape and abuse. The words are confronting. The whole thing is confronting people that haven't 
been abused or survived um, sexual assault, can't even, it's just almost impossible to even talk about it. It's so hard for people, never mind the person that has experienced the abuse. And one of the biggest failings in our society today, from my perspective, is there is zero language around how to talk to people and children and communities about sexual assault. And what you just said hit the nail on the head for me, and I'm sure for many survivors um, out there, where you get questions like that that are more debilitating in many cases than the abuse itself. So the job now, um, Gavin, don't you think when we're educating and informing people is um, it's our job to start creating language that we can use. It, it doesn't exist today. And our education systems need to create this language. Our homes need to create this, uh, this language um, so that um, we can talk to other people. Um, children can talk to each other. There's a great chance that a child can help another child if the language is available. Um, so we don't get caught off guard, completely awkward in confronting conversations. And like you're doing today, you're having a conversation. You might be touching one person, a hundred person, a hundred people, a thousand people. Anything's possible here. But these conversations are what make the changes that change those questions that you're hearing that make you angry and that make myself angry. Yeah, language is like the language we use is so important not only in, in 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 all you know in all walks of life at the moment you know the way we interact with people and the, and the language we use that's why i i always refer to myself as a survivor you know man i i, I you know i'm not a victim i'm a survivor um you know and that's just my language um because to me that that gives me the story that you know it, it, it's it's me um and and there's plenty of other stuff that i've seen um you know, when, whenever there's anything on um, in the news around anything to do with um, child sexual abuse, and there's a lot of comment and commentary on social media around it, and just some of the language that people use that they think they're being supportive as well, um, and the language they're using, which sort of tones it down. Like, I, I really cringe, um, and I don't even like saying it, but, you know, when I see stuff around and, and people talk about kitty fiddlers and, you know, rock spiders and stuff like that and, and use different terminologies for, for you know, for, for what they see as perpetrators of, you know, child sexual assault. Um, and to me, that language is, it, it's not just say what it is. You know, it is, it is someone who has perpetrated, a, you know, one of the most horrendous crimes on our most vulnerable people. They, you know, they are rapists and they are, you know, that, that that's what they do. And when you use those other terminologies, it actually softens it down. Um, so language is a massive part of it. Um, a massive there's, there's, there's yeah because there's a case at the moment um, of, of someone that I know that um, that's going through the court system now um, yeah and, and a lot of people are commenting on it and yeah some of the language um, which I hadn't thought a lot about um, but until you see it and you're starting to feel a, a certain way about it um, even people think that they're doing the right thing actually can cause harm to the to, you know to to the survivors of the act. Gavin, being conscious of your time, um, another very important part of the healing process are the support systems and the people in our lives that we can trust with what is very confronting life experience. You have an incredibly special person in your life. Can you please share with us about the shining star that we all know as your wife, Casey Badger? Yeah, so um, yeah, we've been married for I think it's almost 11 years now. Um, we were together three years before that. 
Um, yeah, so Casey's in the same um, occupation that I have. Uh, she's a, a full-time NRL referee now. Um, she wasn't at the time when we met, but she was in the pathway, so she was on her way to that. Um, she is one of only two females that have ever done that in 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 our country, uh, in the sport, I think, as full-time um, NRL match official. So she's a full-time athlete. Um, yeah, she's, um, she, she's uh, uh, people talk about, she's almost the female version of me. Um, we have very, people talk about, um, you know, the old cliches of you marry your best friend and stuff like that. And um, yeah, I think we're pretty lucky in that. Um, we do virtually uh, joined at the hip. We do everything together. Um, we have very similar interests. There's only a couple of things outside each other. I play a bit of golf. She doesn't like golf. Um, so it's probably one of the only things we don't do together. Um, although she has tried. Um, but yeah, she's, um, she's, she's amazing and resilient. Um, you know, she's had her own battles in her life with um, injuries in her body. So over the last six seasons, she's had eight different surgeries in the off season um, because she has to push her body um, to certain limits to get to where she is. So I'm in awe of her and, um, you know, her, her resilience is, is amazing, which then um, allows me to sort of um, breed off that a little bit, I think, in, in my resilience. Um, but yeah, we, um, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I'm pretty lucky. I've got a pretty special one. So yeah. Um, yeah, and she's my rock. And and not only her, though, her family as well. Like, I have a really you know, amazing relationship with, with her family, um, in particular her parents. Um, most people have, don't have the greatest relationship with their in-laws, but I'm really lucky where um, Casey's mum was probably the second person I'd ever told about my my story. So I'd spoken, after I'd spoken to Casey, I'd spoken to Casey's mum. So, um, yeah, her mum her and dad are virtually, you know, they're, 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 they are virtually blood family to me as well so I got pretty lucky I got I got a pretty good package there that's awesome it's so good to hear um big shout out to Casey pretty amazing accomplishments too um, she's, an ama she's an amazing woman she's good she's gonna she, she, she won't be she won't be happy with me saying that uh, that's all right she deserves it anyway um Gavin okay so um I think that's that's a lot for today and um, from the bottom of my heart, um, thank you for your courage and your bravery and uh, your message today, your education and information is literally a pathway to help um, create awareness and prevention and also, more importantly, really to bring understanding to sexual assault and rape and, and child abuse um, and what it means to our families and our communities. and. Um, you've offered so much today in the way of education that um, is, is going to be incredibly helpful to those that are able to tune in here today. So um, thank you for that. And thank, thank, thank you for you know, giving this platform as well for people to tell their story and, and you know, so hopefully people are more educated and, you know, they have an understanding of, of, of those that have been, you know, perhaps have survived such a traumatic experience and, and how they react to that. Um, I just hope I haven't rambled on too much. When I talk about this stuff, I sort of go into little black spots sometimes and forget what I'm talking about and not sure if I'm even talking about the right thing. So I hope I didn't sort of ramble on too much. That's the beauty of the podcast. There's no right or wrong and we have no time limit. So the rambling is actually, I find the most important stuff and it's where you just go on your train and that's where somebody is going to take something from what you've said 
and you never know what's going to resonate with something with somebody and that's why um, i just love this podcast format because people you can really open up in ways that are not possible on a tv show um, or in a 20-minute conversation in a classroom or a newspaper article um, and and what you have offered today is um, it, in many cases i believe will be life-changing information and potentially life-saving for people it's that important and that powerful. So um, there was no rambling going on today. <laughs> Everything was important. Um, all right. And just to um, quickly wrap it up, you're in such a wonderful position in your life to be able to use your story to help others, yourself as well as others. Um, you're an ambassador for, um, what's the organization? Uh, yeah, so I'm an ambassador for Child Safe. Um, it's an organisation that um, it's a charity organisation that go into organisations and try and childproof um, the the whole organisation, whether it be a business, whether it be a sporting, whether it be a church, um, where it, it's around trying to educate and upskill staff around the science. You know, it's not it's it's not a program where we go in and and actually do any of the work. It's about understanding the science, knowing who to, who's best to then go and um, help help take action or whatever needs to be done. Um, and it's about making sure that workplaces are safe or, you know, organisations are safe, whether it be a sporting organisation um, uh, or, yeah, church or school. Um, so they've done some really good work. Uh, so I've been with them and that I, that that came about through my connection with, with Damien. Um, and off the back of that paddle out that we went to, I organised one um, in Australia two years ago, had a big one planned for last year and COVID um, sort of knocked that on the head. When's um, the next when's the next paddle out? So I'm looking at it now. I'm sort of just starting in the planning phase now of um trying to put something together, whether it be another paddle out or a, a family day or something like that, just to continue to to raise awareness and have have these discussions because a big part of, of any sexual abuse, uh, and in particular child sexual abuse, um, is there's a massive stigma about it and no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to believe it's happening. And like this the statistics say that you know the perpetrators are someone you know, no one wants to believe that. So everyone sort of tries to push that away. And, and we're just like, let's pretend that doesn't happen. Um, we know how prevalent it is, but we will pretend it doesn't happen. What we want to do is bring it out to the surface and make it okay to talk about it. Make it okay to, if you're you know, having those conversations with your friends, if you're, you know, you've got friends over, having those conversations because they're the ones, if we have those conversations, um, that's going to make it so much easier for when a kid comes to you, when you, you know, whether it be, you know, you're a coach of a sporting team and you can see the signs or a kid actually comes to you and, and says something or your own kids or family's kids, um, you're more likely, if you're educated and you understand it, to get the best result. That's that, that that's the whole thing around what we do there. So how can people listening in Australia for the, uh, the Damien Ryder type paddle outs, how can we be informed and updated when um, these events or these paddle outs are happening? Um, yeah, I'm pretty active on social media, so I'll put all that stuff um, up on social media. Um, that's generally how we, we do it. Um, the, the last one we did was over in the Northern Beaches um, in Sydney, so it was at Narrabeen. Um, so in a local area that we sort of advertise it a bit, but um, I, I want it to be bigger. I want it to be bigger because, like I said, I just want people to start talking and, and, and not be a bit of a taboo topic. It's something that, you know. It's, it's, it's so important that we look after our kids. Awesome. I'd like to be part of the next one. So keep me posted. Okay, involved for sure. Absolutely. Um, all right, Gavin, I hope you have a super day and thank you for, for your time, your bravery, your words, your story. Um, you are specifically making a difference in someone's life today. Um, and 
you not only are using your voice, in my opinion, to protect our children, um, you're using your voice to empower them, which is even uh, more significant, giving them the tools and the resources um, and the language that they can help protect themselves and, and others. So um, it is a huge gift. Thank you for your time and love to have you back another, another episode on Open Stands down the track. For sure. Thank you so much, Tracy. Hi, this is Tracy Smith, and I would like to say a special thank you to the following people for contributing to the making of Open Stance. You are all an integral part of bringing this podcast to life. Alex Moltenoff, my editor, what a pro, thank you. Kim Rodenbaugh-Llewellyn for your friendship, support, counsel, and your belief in me. Thank you for sharing your book, Master of the Mask as a resource. Nancy hogshead Makar and Champion Women, Thank you for paving the way and for your leadership. You inspire me every day. Elise Marie Hunter, thank you for providing me the rights to use your Spotify track, Light as a Feather. And to my husband, Jimmy Smith, your love and continued encouragement have helped make my vision come to life. Thank you for giving me the greatest gift of all, understanding. Jimmy, you have helped me and that helped will now help many others as Open Stance grows and finds its way to people who need its support and education. And to my mentors who have shared their brave voices, you are making a difference in the world by sharing your experiences. This podcast only works with your support. Thank you to my brother Brady Height, Kim Rodenbaugh-Llewellyn, Nancy Hogshead-Makar, Gavin Badger, Aaron Aldrich-Sheen, and Amelia Thorpe, of ameliathorpe.blog. And a special thank you to Life and Mind Psychology in Sydney, Australia. Thank you to the founder and primary clinical psychologist, Stephanie Allen, and your amazing colleague, clinical psychologist, Alana Carpin. Thank you all very much.